0: Almighty God, we give Thee thanks for the message of Easter and the Easter story and the promise of salvation. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive Thy Word and to be set on fire by it. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in Thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen so great to see so many people on such a beautiful day when lots of Episcopal blue domers are probably tempted to sit in the sun or sit on the dock or somewhere else nice. And it's great to have some, so many people at such a nice place as this. Um, we are in the third of our three post-resurrection stories from John. The first of which, the week after Easter Sunday, was the reactions of Mary Magdalene and Peter and John, uh, yes, Peter and John to the resurrection. The second one last week, and I couldn't be with you but I listened to it, listened to Steve lead the group, on the story of Thomas and how Thomas was first skeptical and then totally committed once he had What's he has seen? And Jesus said, Blessed are those who believe even though they don't see. And it occurred to me as I was listening to it that that lesson was being delivered on Mother's Day. And those of you who are here who are mothers probably recognized in Thomas's uh, stubbornness a little bit of what you probably raised as children, because who hasn't had stubborn children from time to time? Today, I'd like to talk about the story from the last chapter of John's gospel and I call it Simon are you fond of me and the reason for that will be apparent fairly early on if somebody would volunteer to read verses 1 through 17 of John chapter 21 the last chapter and then we'll talk about it and kind of pull it apart bit by bit any volunteers
1: Because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land... They saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught, that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and handed Paul to the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead.
0: Two more. Two seventeen okay. please.
1: Oh, yeah. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John... You know that I love you," Jesus said to him. "Feed my sheep."
0: Thank you. Well read.
1: I'm trying to get under the mark well.
0: <laughs> I'm pretty sure you did. Thank you. At the end of chapter twenty, we get a little, like, epitaph, if you will where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in His name. Now that reads like the end of the Gospel. It's like a summing up. And there's been speculation that in fact, That's where John intended to end his gospel, but at some time later, thinking about it, he added chapter 21. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anybody does. But there's no doubt that John intended chapter 21 to be an epilogue. He began his gospel with a prologue, the first 18 verses, and now he's ending with a story that I think is intended to sum it up. Um, the prologue sets out broad themes, sort of like the, um, the overture in a musical or a, uh, or a symphony that is about to put the overture kind of lays out the musical theme. So does the prologue in John's Gospel. And here in the epilogue, I think what we want to do is to try to, to, to squeeze out what it is that John wanted us to take away by writing, by adding that chapter 21. If you saw the movie, The Gospel According to John, which was made 12 or 15 years ago by an American-Canadian group, it was very well done. Um, Every word of the Gospel of John from the the Good News Bible, but it, it worked, it really did, narrated by Christopher Plummer, the movie opens with a shot of the sun coming up over the water, And you hear Christopher Plummer's narration. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it ends the movie, the beginning of the narration in chapter 21, ends with the same image, the sun coming up over the water. When the apostles were there, seven of them were there in the boat, having caught nothing all night. So that's a nice visual emphasis, I think, on what John intended that he began his gospel with a prologue and he ended it with an epilogue. So what does he mean about the epilogue? Um, well, they are back in Galilee. Remember that, um, that it, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew and again in the gospel of Mark, they were commanded to go to Galilee where Jesus would, would connect up with them. And this is the first, the, the first mention of them in John's gospel back in Galilee. It's the third time that Jesus has appeared to them. Frank Limehouse once preached a sermon where he made a humorous little note that, that, that probably they went to Galilee with some sense of foreboding. Like he was going to say, I have a bone to pick with you cowards when he met them on the shores of the Sea of Tiberias. But, of course, he didn't do that. He, he, they deserved a tongue lashing for their, for their lack of faith. But that's not what they got. Instead, they get this very memorable moment. They had caught no fish. He told them where to cast their nets. They now caught more fish than they could haul under the boat. 153, and the net wasn't torn. We'll talk about that in a moment. We see some of the personalities again on display. Remember in the Easter story of chapter 20, we saw Peter being the bold, aggressive bull in a china shop sort of man of action. And here he does the same thing. He, he's bold enough to leap in, into, the, into the Sea of Galilee and swim ashore. He's not even going to wait for the boat to sail in the hundred yards to the shore. He's that bold. We also see that John is the intellectual. John is the first one to recognize him. He says, it's the Lord. And um, that's similar to what we see in chapter 20. Peter, the bold one who dashes first into the empty tomb. John, the one who looks at the at the burial clothes lying in their folds and understands what it means. The intellectual, the first one to figure it out. Notice that there is another clue here that the physical appearance of Jesus has been transformed in some way. They were only a hundred yards offshore, but they didn't recognize Him. They didn't. Uh, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize Him On Easter Sunday, she supposed him to be the gardener. The two travelers, the two apostles who were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel walked with him for an hour or more talking about these incredible things that had happened in Jerusalem. And how is it you don't know about any of this? They didn't recognize him until he broke the bread. So it's not to put too fine a point on it, I think that after the resurrection, Jesus was physically transformed in a way that made him difficult to recognize even by people who'd spent the last three years in intimate contact with him. I mean, how easy is it to pick out a spouse or an old friend from a large group of people a long way off, just recognizing the way the person stands or moves, or a gesture that's familiar, and yet they did not know Jesus. John, you have a, a look on your face like you wanted to say something. I don't want to keep you from doing that. No? Sorry to call you out. Never mind. Charles will edit that out of the tape, okay? <laughs> um, but, But even when they were sitting there around the fire with Jesus on the shore none of them dared ask him they they knew that it was Jesus but you can imagine they they wanted to say is it really you but they didn't i mean they they were they were sort of transfixed um, the detail about the 153 fish probably some of you have read some of what's been written about it. An awful lot of ink has been written about whether John was trying to tell us something really, really, you know, important about the number 153. Any any thoughts about what you've read or what you've thought about it, Brian? Well, well
1: John says that he tells these stories so that we'll believe, and, and uh, I mean, it could be just simply that he. He gives that precise number uh, because it's a fact and, and he wants us to understand that, that, that this is
0: a truth. And he was there. Yeah, yeah, that he was there. And, and it there makes was sense there was a lot of fish. Yeah, and, and it makes sense that he would know that because there were seven fishermen and of course they would divide the catch and so they would count the catch out. And And they would make sure that everybody gets the equal number of fish or the equal size of fish and the equal um, uh, distribution of the really good fish and the ones that you really just want to throw back or maybe use for bait fish the next time you go out. So there's a, as, as Brian suggests, there's a hint of authenticity in getting the 153 number. Also the fact that it was 153 and yet the net was not torn I think, is John wanting to emphasize that this was a real miracle. They'd fished all night. They'd been, these were fishermen. These were guys who who did this for a living. They knew what they were doing. And yet they had caught nothing all night. And this, this stranger on the shore 100 yards away says, cast your nets over here. Well, how did he know? Well, this was another example, I think, in John's Gospel, he shows these miracles to emphasize Christ's divinity. He can calm the waves, he can raise the dead to life. These are the signs in the Book of Signs that's John's Gospel. Valerie, you had a thought, a point? I I had
2: maybe a question and comment. Um, 153, from a quantitative standpoint, I mean, what would have been the normal catch would be w- know, the normal catch is like a hundred well, w- to emphasize the the magnitude right. of the event. Then, forgive me, but I said, well, one and five and three, you add them together, they're nine. Take squared, square it's the Trinity. <laughs>
0: okay, all right. Let's talk about the numerology angle. In fact, a lot of ink has been has been devoted to the numerology angle. There was an American, retired American army officer who wrote a whole book about it, uh, finding this great significance in 153. If you if you, add the number of, of books of the Bible and multiply by the number of tribes of Israel, I, I don't know exactly how it comes out. Um, there is, you know, that's a, a, a valid question, but... I do believe that John put it in there for a reason. My my gut instinct is that reading too much into the number is reading more into the 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 text than out of it. I think that really the, the there were if there was a, a reason above and beyond the verisimilitude, the one hundred fifty three. I was there. I saw it. I'm telling you so you'll believe it too if there's a reason beyond that perhaps it is that John was sort of getting a glimpse of the way when Jesus said I'll make you fishers of men they drag in this incredible bounty of fish which which could be and the and the net wasn't torn which might have been John's way of saying that with Jesus all of humanity will come together in the church, and the church will not will not lose them. The church will not tear. It will hold all sorts and conditions. And it, it, if there's a if there's a deeper meaning to the to the detail than that, that's my sense of of what it probably is. Steve, Saint Jerome, yeah. and I like
1: this said that. 153 were the number of species of fish. And that, and that the net didn't break because there was room for everybody. So it was like, you're going, you know, cause he's getting, he's told them, he's going to be telling them again in essence to go and evangelize, spread the word. You're going to be my mouthpiece. And so that no matter how many people you go to, there's room for everybody.
2: I would agree too, and there's looking in conjunction also with Luke. I think it's Luke five, is the first miraculous catch prior to the resurrection, where Jesus is talking about being fishers of men. The distinction is that the net is not torn, exactly as you said, and so the number doesn't matter. So doesn't matter so much if it's the Trinity or if it's the the fishers of all men and all nations or just simply the miraculous nature of it. All of those other than the Trinity, those two interpretations are already in the text otherwise. Mm. So then to Mm. say very specifically, well, this is exactly what 153 means, and this is why we can prove it, and this is why we can know, doesn't matter because it's already there in the text in another way. Uh, So that's why I'm, I'm always like, yep, 153, we might never know, but I think you're right that it's the eyewitness nature of John's testimony, and then also this miraculous nature of the catch and its significance for being fishers of all men.
0: Perfect. Somebody had actually, to take forward Jerome's writing, somebody had actually written that 153 was the known number of nations in the in the classical world. The, the classical culture could identify 153 specific nations, groups of people, um, ethnic groups, whatever you have it. In the in the Greco-Roman classical world, I don't know if that's true or not. But For every
2: one of those papers that's written, there's another paper saying, "Well, no, that's." No, not No, that a can't thing. be true, right? Yes, right. Right, no, right, a, so. right.
0: Well, it's still that's
1: a lot of fish thing. because you know, <laughs> if you go out crappie fishing and catch 153 crappie, well, that's a big mess of crappie, but it's not gonna it's not gonna tear any big nets or anything. But if I remember correctly, I think. Most of what they fish for and caught in, in the lake there, and it's true to this day, is, is some species of tilapia, and they're they're pretty big fish. I mean, an average tilapia is mm-hmm. going to be about like that. So you get 153 mm-hmm. of those suckers, and and it's it's going to be a real That's big massive fish. It says large fish,
0: yeah. That's a whole lot of fish tacos on the seashore. (laughs) In
2: Luke it says not only are the nets torn, they start to tear, but then the boats start to sink. Which
0: would suggest. That's right. That's right. Well, um, I don't think anybody's um, salvation depends upon (laughs) getting that detail right. I think it's enough that we recognize that there was a real miracle there. Now, what really is important, I think, about the, about the passage is the end of what Charles read. They get to the seashore. They eat breakfast. Obviously, another little detail, Jesus was eating food. Uh, ghosts, apparitions don't eat food. One of, the, one of the primal heresies in the church at the time that John wrote his gospel was the heresy that Jesus was not real life, flesh, and blood. He was more like a disembodied spirit. Well, even after the resurrection, he was eating food. Nice little detail that John includes. But here is the exchange that follows, and this is where I believe John was really focused in chapter 21. He wanted us to see what Jesus has to say To Simon Peter now there's nothing sacramental about this meal but note that like the um, like the Last Supper that what follows is is something really really sacramentally important what followed the Last Supper in John's account is the washing of the feet what follows now is Jesus allowing Peter up off the mat why was Peter on the mat well let's go back to the the end of um, chapter 14, which is where we have the last Supper in in John's account. They have this is while they're still in the upper room before they leave and and go on, Jesus goes on this long discourse as they're headed to to Gethsemane. but at the end of of, of chapter 14, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Once again, Peter Mr. Bull in the china shop shoots his mouth off and Jesus calls him back to reality. And sure enough, can you imagine the personal humiliation that Peter must have felt after the, cro- the cock crowed the third time and he realized that he had been called out? He had been exposed as a coward, as a betrayer of his Lord. Can you imagine the emotions that Peter must have had as he sat there eating fish with the risen Lord and then when Jesus turns to him and says three times, Do you love me? It couldn't have, have, have missed Peter's understanding that the three times that he was being asked perfectly parallel the three times that he was asked outside the trial in the Sanhedrin when he said no. And now he was given the opportunity to say yes. But, as Bishop Salmon pointed out in that very fine sermon that he preached during our Lenten series, the problem for us is that we are reading this text in English. A few of the English translations, the more modern translations, get a sense... Of what Jesus was asking Peter. But most of them. Are like the one that we read this morning. Like the King James Bible. It, it uses the. English word love. Well the Greeks had lots of words for love. And in fact. What Jesus asked Peter. Was Simon. Agapus may. Do you love me in the highest deepest, most spiritual sense, the Greek word agape, the great spiritual love. He asked Peter, do you love me spiritually, Agapas me? Peter, no doubt still humiliated and no doubt Chastened enough that he's no longer going to make any bold pronouncements like, Lord, I will give my life for you, because he's only going to be called out again. Peter answers with a different word for love. What is it? Y'all know it. Phileos, brotherly love. He says, and it's right here in the Greek translation, he says, Lord you know that I love you he says philo say he, you know that I am fond of you which is really what he was saying i you know my you're my pal you're my <laughs> you're my wingman you know we're 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 bros we are we are pals i will always i will always have your back you know when when we're at the ball game or you know if you if, if you need somebody to, to, to watch over your family while you're on a business trip, I'm your guy. That's the word that Peter was using back to Jesus. Philo say, and I'm sure that he was using it because to answer agape, he understood that he was not worthy to use that word. He, was, he had been totally unworthy of the promise that he had made to Jesus in the upper room, I will die for you. And he knew it. That's the key. He knew it. He understood it. The second time, Jesus asked, Agapus may. And the second time, Peter answers, Philo say, I am fond of you. What did Jesus say the third time? He says, Phileas may. The third time Jesus asked Peter, he says, Are you fond of me? Now, it says that that Peter was grieved. Um, he He felt hurt in some of the translations. He was grieved when Jesus said to him a third time, Do you love me? Well, was he grieved because Jesus said it the third time? I don't think so. I think he was grieved because the third time Jesus said it, it was to adopt the verb that Peter had used. Do you love me? Are you fond of me? Phylos, Phileas Me, do you are you fond of me? J- Peter was grieved because Jesus was speaking to him exactly where he was. And he knew that he was unworthy of using agape. And so Jesus was coming down, if you will, to his level. Okay. Are you fond of me? This is where Peter is grieved. This is why Peter is grieved, I think. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so the third time, Jesus gives him the same commandment. Feed my lambs. Take care of my flock. Feed my sheep. Be the good shepherd. If you can't agape me, then phileus me. That'll be good enough. That's why I think Peter was the most grieved because he knew that he was not capable of loving Jesus the way he was capable, the way he deserved to be loved. But this is the gospel message, I think. Uh, you know, the two, the, in the first of the three post-resurrection stories we talked about. My take on, on that one is that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene because um, she, although she did not have the great charisma of Peter to be the, the, the rock of the church, although she didn't have the great theological insight to be John, the, the gospel writer who, who, who writes from the eagle's eye view, she loved him, and she loved him with all of her heart and with all of her soul and with all of her mind, and she was there with him during the crucifixion. She was there at the tomb, and he appeared first to her because she was so pure in her love. that. And we can all do that. you know. We can all love Jesus with all of our heart and with all of our mind. Peter could not love Jesus the way Jesus deserved to be loved but none of the rest of us can either. I mean, isn't that true? So Jesus says, "Love me as best you can." I think the gospel message that John wanted to to close his gospel with, the, the epilogue if you will, is that God's forgiveness is greater and more infinite than any of us can ever imagine greater and more infinite than any of us can ever even think to ask. It's that infinite. But because His love is so infinite, it's pure agape, He is willing to accept from us the best that we can do, knowing that we can't love Him the way He deserves to be loved. When Jesus says, if you were merely fond of me, then feed my sheep. If you love me as well as you can, feed my sheep. I will accept the best you can give. If that's all you can do, and God knows it's all I can do, my imperfect love is, is enough to cause me great shame every day. That's what he was reaching back to Peter to say. He was there to comfort Mary Magdalene in the garden who was weeping for her Lord and knew nothing other than she loved him and she was devoted to him, so he went to her. He went to Peter in Peter's extreme. Peter's Achilles heel, if you will, had been, had been wounded. He got the arrow in the, in the exact spot that would hurt him the worst. He had been a coward at the moment that Peter, the bold bull in the china shop, thought that he could be the the mighty warrior. He had been a coward. Jesus went to him and picked him up off of the mat and said, love me as well as you can love me and feed my sheep. And that, I think, is the point that John wants us to take away from his gospel and the point the reason that he wrote this chapter 21 and tacked it on at the end of his gospel. Any thoughts? Any comments about that?
1: I, I've always thought that um, the way the, God, the word of the gospel spread when he was Jesus was so unbelievably incredible. And I think. Exactly what you're saying uh, was the impetus for it, that. This is the way to the Lord, and you can have other people come to the Lord by feeding them. And I don't think he's particularly talking about food. No. no. about spirituality. And it's just unbelievable uh, what 11 of the disciples. Uh, I guess it was ten or 11 disciples were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's incredible. It's unbelievable, and obviously, it worked.
0: We all know that there are skeptics who've said for years that, well, probably the body had been moved, and this was all a, you know, a sort of a cult. Mm-hmm. And they point to the Jim Jones cult or the Millennium cult or any of those other cults, but There's one difference between the story of the early church and the story of those cults. In a particular moment, Jim Jones could convince all of his cult followers to drink the Kool-Aid. That's where we get that expression, (laughs) literally. It's very much different, though, to to, to infer that over the course of 60 or 70 years, one after another of these who had been most intimate with him, and not just the 11 who were left, but many others beside, went to their deaths with great joy in their hearts and quite willingly. Over the course of a long period of time in completely different circumstances, I frankly think that the odds of somebody blowing the whistle on a fraud are pretty high if it had been a fraud, if they had moved the body. Uh, that's not what happened. And uh, modern day deep thinkers who say that whatever it was that they saw in that tomb on Easter Sunday, I don't know what it was, but it was clearly enough to make them believers. That's just too clever by half. They were transformed by it and they transformed the world because of it. They fed his lambs. They're feeding him still. And for that we can say, thanks be to God. God bless you all over the long um, summer vacation, and we'll see you again in September. Studying, we know not yet what, but we'll figure it out. Studying something.
2: (laughs) Studying the Bible. Studying
0: the Bible, that's right. It won't be the collected works of William Shakespeare. It will definitely be Holy Scripture.